Now, let's finish Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in the capital city of the first century Roman province of Asia, and let's close it out. Turn with me if you have a Bible. If not, you can look on the screen uh, to Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. You can just hold it right there. I'll get to those four verses in just a minute, but I wanted to get you there before I tried to kind of conclude what we've already covered. So here's a summary of what we've covered so far. If you'll recall, Paul is writing this letter from Rome in about 60 AD. He's under house arrest. And he started off the letter, if you recall, by reminding his audience, which were at least seven churches in the province of Asia in the Roman Empire in the first century. We know there were seven because when you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses all seven churches. There may have been dozens more, but he's addressing what he's writing to those churches in that Roman province of Asia. And he calls those folks in those churches God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And he reminds them, and he's reminding us as he writes these words of their identity. Then he goes on to remind them of the fact that they were chosen by God and have received redemption from sin and judgment by the blood of Jesus. He tells them that God has poured out his grace and his mercy and his love on them. And they and you and I, if we really know Jesus and have his spirit in us, have inherited an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he reminded them they've been reconciled to God to do good works. That's Ephesians 2.10. More on that good works thing in just a minute. And he invites them to join God in displaying to all those spirit beings in the universe that are all around, every demon, every angel, whether there's thousands or millions, they're there, of God's love. And we're supposed to demonstrate that, his love, his wisdom, and his glory by the way we live. In the last half of the letter, he goes on to share with them some specifics on how to get along with one another, if you'll recall. We talked about that. And what to do and what not to do. We as Americans just don't like to be told what to do and what not to do. But the Bible is full of that in Jesus' teaching and in Paul's letters. How to live at home. How to live at a church. How to treat your spouse. How to treat your children. How to treat other people. How to live at work. How to treat your employer and how to treat your employees. He addressed all that grassroots, blue-collar, life-on-life Christianity. And how to live in a very immoral and very depraved culture that they live. You, you think we live in a depraved culture? That was an incredibly depraved city. Even the Romans called it the sewage of the town of Ephesus because it was so immoral. He reminded them that we live on a spiritual battlefield. Whether they live in first century Ephesus or 21st century Fayetteville, we were born, as Lee reminded us last week, we were born on a spiritual battlefield. We'll die on a spiritual battlefield. We sleep on a spiritual battlefield, and we work and we play on a spiritual battlefield. He reminded us that we need to embrace not just a 21st century rationalistic worldview, but a supernatural worldview, and recognize that we have powerful spiritual enemies that oppose us, and as Jesus said, want to steal, kill, and destroy. Also, he asked them to recognize 
that they and we are expected to fight with powerful spiritual weapons that we have at our disposal until the day he calls us home. But God knows that Paul was not just writing this letter to a first century church in 60 AD, but also to God's holy people in Fayetteville, Arkansas, living in 2022. Also, as he would say, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So now let's join Paul. I only have four verses to exposit this morning. Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. That was a summary, the best I could do in the few minutes I have of the book of Ephesians to this point. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, Paul says, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Christianity is a relationship thing. It's not a monastic order. It is an invitation to have relationships, not just with God, but with other people. Intimate, personal relationships where you share your hurts, your prayer needs, your grievances, your trouble in this troubled world that Jesus promised we would have trouble in. It's a fallen world. It's a sin-cursed world. And Paul has needs. At times he's sick. At times he's in prison or in jail. At times he's been beaten half to death. At times he's high on things and things are going well. Life on life, it's all right here. Tychus is, is a dear friend of his. And the way he can tangibly express his love to the Ephesian church is to send one of his best friends to minister to them and to encourage them and to share his life with them. He says that in the next verse. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are. And it's not just him. It's all of his friends that are ministering to him in Rome. How we are that he may encourage you. He wants to hear from you what your prayer needs are and bless you and minister to you. Loving people tangibly, one of the two mantras of this church, one of the two things Jesus said all of the Bible hangs on, loving God and loving people, is expressed in those first two verses. And now he moves to a blessing he's going to speak on the Ephesian church and on us. He mentions four specific things. He's kind of speaking blessing. Words are powerful. They are. We don't often think about that, especially with social media today. We can say anything and hit a button and curse people by our words. Or we can bless people by what we write, what we text, what we send out on social media, and what we speak to other people. And Paul is blessing the Ephesian church by his words. Four things he says as he prays this prayer, so to speak, and pronounces this blessing on them. Peace is first. Peace to the brothers and sisters. We'll exposit these four words in just a minute. And then he says, and love. He's talking about horizontal love here. He'll get to the love of God in the last verse. Here he's talking about more love for other people. He said in the first chapter in verses 15 and 16, we'll look at that in a minute, that they were known by their love for other people in their church and the other churches in the first century Roman Empire. Love with faith. They were also known for their faith. Faith in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, where I'll spend most of my time this morning. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Grace there just means 
more blessings I speak on those who really love God. That's the number one commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's all of what we preach and teach is hung in these four verses. Loving God and loving people in tangible ways. Loving God passionately, as we say. So that's those four verses. Comments on the verses. We know that Tychicus is from the province of Asia. We know that from Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Most likely, he's from Ephesus. He is obviously a very close friend of Paul. He's mentioned five times in Scripture. And in every instance, he's working behind the scenes, and he remains faithful to the end. Great will be Tychicus' reward in heaven someday. He's probably experienced that even now for his faithful service to help advance the kingdom of God in the first century Roman Empire. Point. There will be thousands of Tychuses in heaven. Men and women that work faithfully behind the scenes and got little or no recognition here on this earth, but will get great rewards and recognition by the God they faithfully served. There are probably many in this room this morning. Those four blessings, let me expand on that just a minute. Peace first. The kind of peace Paul's talking about can only come through a deep connection to God through Christ. Let me just read you three quick verses on peace from the New Testament. Well, two from the New Testament, one from the Old. Romans 5, 1 first, Paul speaking. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, he's talking, of course, about salvation. And let me just exposit the gospel real quick again this morning. Didn't plan to do this, but I'm going to. Jesus Christ died on a real Roman cross about 2,000 years ago in fulfillment of the laws that he had written that required the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for his prized creation's moral failure, to atone for our ancient ancestors joining an angelic rebellion against his ethos and his value system and his way of life. And he knew when he created those angels and he knew when he created our ancestors and us. And by the way, he says, you and I are the pinnacle of his creation. You are his beloved. You're what he came for, that we would blow it. And according to his own sense of justice that I don't fully understand, he wrote himself into his own story as the sin sacrifice to pay for, to buy you back, to atone for my failure and your failure. And it's a free gift he offers no matter how long you've been in rebellion against him today. To prove his point, he took a dying thief with him. that uttered a few feeble words to him on the cross in faith. And he said to that thief today with me in paradise. That's one way of presenting the gospel. So I offer him to you this morning. His atoning death. Faith in that will get you in a right relationship with God. You will be justified through faith. Paul says, we have peace with God now. We've been reconciled with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and his sin sacrifice. John 14, 27, Jesus himself on the last night of his life said this to his disciples. What a strange time to talk about peace. He's about to be arrested, tortured, brutalized, spit on, ridiculed, mocked, stripped naked, hung on a Roman cross to die. To bleed out. He's going to be rejected by his daddy. He knows what's coming and he's talking about peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Wow. 
I don't give you as the world gives. He's not talking about absence of conflict. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Isaiah 8. If you're going to fear anything, Jim, fear me. (laughs) If you'll make the fear of the reverent awe of me your only fear, you need fear nothing else. If you'll get right with God through Christ, you don't have to be afraid of anything. And then the word shalom. Those passages I've just read don't have the word shalom because they're in Greek and Aramaic. They're not in Hebrew. The Hebrew word shalom, though, is what they're talking about. It means the favor of God, the extreme blessing and favor of God upon you. It's not just the absence of conflict. So let me read an Old Testament passage about shalom. It's that psalm that's so popular right now. And I don't feel guilty at all about singing that song with gusto. I want the favor and the blessing of God. And here it is from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Favor and blessing from God. That's all wrapped up in what Paul is asking for the church at Ephesus and for us. And then the second thing, love for each other. In Ephesians 1, 15, 16, and I mentioned earlier, let me just read it. Paul's already commended them for their love and for their faith. And that's the third thing. For this reason, Paul says, as he starts his letter, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, they have a reputation among the churches in the Roman Empire of being a church that believes in God and has faith in God and your love for all of God's people. It's a horizontal love. They probably express that love in a couple of ways. They financially and prayerfully supported missionaries and global workers, as we call them, like Paul. And they probably sent money to poor churches that had need. They have a reputation for loving all of God's people. They probably expressed it in a lot of ways. And Paul's asking God, give them more, God. Give them more. Give them more love. And faith is the same thing. Same passage of Scripture I just read. More faith from God. It's okay to ask God, by the way, for more faith for you or for anyone else. Paul's asking it here. And fourthly, this is where I want to spend a few minutes, the last verse. He asks for her. He speaks this blessing over them. Grace or blessing for those who have an undying love for Jesus. The word undying is translated in other places immortal or incorruptible, as it may say in the ESV. We're told in many places in Scripture and in many ways that God wants first and foremost our affections. Jesus says on more than one occasion that the first and greatest commandment that I've already quoted is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, Jim. Matthew 22, 37 is one place he says that. God wants to be your first love. He wants to, there's lots of things competing for your love and your affection. All kinds of things that you and I throw ourselves into. We have lots of lovers, so to speak. Speaking metaphorically. But God wants to be our first love. He wants to be the primary object of our deepest affection. We're commanded in Scripture to love our wife, to love our husband, to love our children, our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's even talking about it right here. 
and particularly the poor and the disadvantaged, the disenfranchised. But in Matthew 10, 37, in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, Jesus says some hard things, and Paul does. Our first priority, he says, above our love, even for our family, is to love the one who created us and paid for us with his own blood. God portrays himself in the Old Testament. This is called the lover paradigm. It's all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. He portrays himself as the great lover of his people. There's graphic, even sexual language. I'm even embarrassed to quote from Ezekiel about God's affection for Israel. Over and over, he uses romantic language and metaphor to communicate his love for Israel. The worship of other gods, of idols, sometimes he calls them just statues made of wood or stone. Other times he says there's demonic forces behind them. They're worshiping demons, literally. He equates that to adultery. In the book of Hosea, he portrays Israel as a promiscuous, unfaithful wife that he takes back time and time again in spite of her many spiritual adulteries, which included the worship included sacrifice of children in some case. In the New Testament, he calls the church his beloved bride to continue the allegory or the metaphor. Paul's last words in Ephesians, they serve as a prophetic warning in ways to love God and his son with a passionate, undying love. That requires work. Any relationship does. Intentionality. 30 to 40 years later, after Paul wrote this letter, another old man will write. He's the last living apostle. Paul has been beheaded by a madman by the name of Nero. He's dead. All the apostles are dead. The last man standing is John. And he has a vision one day. He says he's in the spirit on a Sunday, on the Lord's day. And the Lord shows up himself and he speaks directly. And one of the things he does, he speaks directly to seven Roman province churches. The first church he addresses is the church at Ephesus. Time has passed. 30 to 40 years have passed since Paul issued the close of the letter to the Ephesian church. We've got second and third generation Christians now in this church. It's age. It's a large church in a very influential city. And it's doing good. Jesus commends them for their orthodox beliefs. Wow. Their perseverance, their hard work, all that Ephesians 2.10 stuff, all those good works they're doing. But then he rebukes them for something. Apparently for some of them, their love for him has grown cold. Let me just read to you what Jesus says to this church Paul is writing to 30 to 40 years earlier. Turn with me if you have a Bible or you can look on the screen to Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. That's a really cool thought in and of itself. Is there an angel for every church in the church age? Are there angels for all the churches in this city that really worship Jesus? I think so. We don't know for sure, but certainly there was one for this church. These are the words of him. Jesus is speaking now about himself who holds the seven stars, probably referring to the seven angels that represent those seven Roman province churches, and walk among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus saying, this is me. <laughs> I know your deeds. Sounds bad, doesn't it? No, he's going to commend them for their deeds. 
I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people that you've tested. In other words, they're very orthodox in their beliefs. They haven't drifted from the true gospel. They, they, they've rejected heresy. Those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false, false teachers. Persevered. Again, he says that twice. You've persevered. Probably under economic persecution from the culture and religious persecution and other things. You've endured many hardships for my name. And you've not grown weary, so to speak, in well-doing. Verse 4. There's a but. There's a yet. Yet I've got this against you. You have forsaken. That's a key word. Some translations say your first love. You've forsaken the love you had at first. What love is he talking about? He has to be talking about vertical love now. He's got to be talking about what was once a white, hot passion for God, for Jesus. But it's grown cold. He said, consider how far you've fallen and repent. That means change directions and start intentionally loving me again. And do the things you did at first. And then he warns them, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your candle from the lampstand. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I'm pretty sure I don't want to find out. So, where do we go with this? Well, every comment here that I read, and I read several this week, I always do. I don't think I'm near as smart as the people that have spent a lot more time than me studying this stuff, and I want their thoughts. Every commentator believes that their faith practices had degenerated into a cold, mechanical, religious orthodoxy. The Greek word translated forsaken is, I don't know how it's pronounced, spelled A-P-H-I-E-M-I. -I. I should have asked somebody before I got up here, I forgot. Uh, Aphemai. It's the same word used for divorcing your spouse in 1 Corinthians 7, 11. It means to divorce, to dismiss, to put away, or to leave. Again, Jesus is using lover language. Don't miss it. Let's take Jesus' words to heart just for a minute. The Ephesian church, New Heights church. Can we pull up that circle chart? I get somewhat prideful about this circle chart, I confess, okay? I, I always say it's my sanity sheet. It's all of New Heights on one page. I can look at it. And, 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 but it's more than that. I use it as a propaganda piece, too. Uh, it makes me feel good to be involved in something bigger than just Jim. I'll say that unashamedly. There's a lot of good stuff. I know you can't read it. I know that. And, and, and I didn't put it up there for you to read the details of. Most of you have read the thing dozens of times. If you hadn't, I'm sorry if you want one. I've got a couple here. We'll, and I can give them to you. But there's a lot of good stuff on that circle chart. A lot of Ephesians 2.10 stuff. A lot of good works. Potter's House ministers to hundreds and hundreds of people in this city. The Joshua Center. It's the largest counseling center in the state, folks. It ministers to literally thousands of people every year. Preschool place. We've got about 60 or 70 global workers in about 28 countries doing all kinds of wonderful things. The Ukrainian project that Chad would just up about, we're all in on that financially and people-wise. We're even launching someday, hopefully this summer we're going to break ground, 
that affordable housing project, it's funded, it'll build about 100 units of housing for those in need. Those are tangible expressions of the love of God for our community and the people of this world. They're Ephesians 2.10 type stuff. Jesus loves this kind of stuff. I don't want to diminish it in any way. But if Jim or you or I are caught up in only doing good works, second commandment stuff, there's a danger that we could allow our love for Jesus, even in the midst of doing good stuff, to grow cold. He is my first love. He's supposed to be the object of my deepest affection. Not my ministry, not my good works, and not my church's good works. In a couple of other places in Scripture, Jesus issues a similar prophetic warning, and it's a lot scarier when he issues it. To the church that would be around at the second coming approach as the return of Christ in the end times drew nigh. He said that as the world cultures become more and more wicked, and as they deviate further and further from his standard of how to live on this planet, that the love of most people, he didn't even say many people, he said most people, and he's talking about professed Christ followers, toward him would grow cold. But that the one who stands firm to the end would be saved. He even predicted, in a way, this massive wave of what's called deconstructors that many of our children and our grandchildren and our friends have fallen into. And, and it's okay to keep praying and begging God for them. I don't know what your theology is about all that. I believe that they never really knew him or they wouldn't have fallen away and I can pray for their salvation. Or if you want to believe they returned to the faith, that's okay. But he predicted it that, that many would forsake him. And we're seeing that now. Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13. It's scary, but I need to read it to you. The disciples, he'd started commenting on things about the temple being destroyed and all kinds of things, bad things happening and scary things. They said, what I would have said, when's all this going to happen? That's in verse 3. It's not on the screen. What will be the sign of all this and at the end of the age? Verse 10. At that time, what time? Toward the end of time. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray each other. They will fall away and start to say bad things about each other. And many false prophets, many teachers who are teaching that it's just okay, they're teaching universalism, will appear and deceive many people. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness and immorality, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then he goes on to say, before this happened, the gospel is going to be preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation to put a marker on it. He said that some will have a form of godliness, speaking through Paul and Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. They would even be religious, but deny that was the power of God. So, pragmatically, how do we keep our love from growing cold? How does the Bible tell us to express the love of God? Here's lots of ways. There's lots of ways. I'm just going to name seven. That's a good religious number, so I picked seven, okay? And I found seven. There's more, but here's seven for you. Number one, spend time in his word. Chad will be preaching in a couple of weeks on Psalm 119. It's all about his word. Learn his ways and his value system. You need to know the teachings of daddy. Number two, closely related, 
John 14, verses 15 and 23, Jesus said, if you love me, Jim, keep my commandments. I got to know them first. I got to be immersing myself in them. And then I need to be practicing the ethos of heaven here on earth. Obey his commandments. Jesus said, one of the ways you can express love to me is just to do what I say. <laughs> Number three, love God's people in need in tangible ways. That's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's the parable of the story of the sheep and the goats. And, and, and we're trying to do that around here. And, and I'd give us a high marks on that. The, if you're not passionate about other people in need, understand that's one of the ways we express love to God, but it's only one. Number four, be filled with his spirit and be led by his spirit. I know that's a little weirder for some of you. He commanded it in this book, Ephesians 5, 18. He said, be filled with the spirit as if we had some part to play in that. I've told you what I do. I get down on my knees every morning and ask God to fill me with his Holy Spirit and speak to me through the day. Then I look for him to speak to me and be led by his spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 says the same thing. Jesus put it another way in John 10, 14 through 16. If you don't like the Holy Spirit thing, okay, go out like this. Get to know Jesus and discern his voice because it's his spirit speaking to you anyway. Number five, pray to him and spend time with him. And just thank him every day for everything. That'll cure a lot of problems if you'll just develop a thankful heart. I have a list because I can be ornery and discontent and just cantankerous at times. And what helps me as an antidote is just to bust into thankfulness and praise and remember specifically the good things that a good God has done for me and to tell him thanks again for all those things. Number six, Romans 12, one and two, Paul says, here's an act of worship for you, Jim. Offer your body and all your stuff and all your talent and all your time, all you have daily as a living sacrifice to God. Lastly, and this is something we can do right now, and this is the application for this morning. Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually, in our private time, in our corporate time here in this gym we call a church, offer up to God continually the sacrifice of praise and worship. So we get to tell the lover of our soul, Andrew, y'all better come on up here. We're going to start worshiping. I promise you, I'm not leading. So tell the lover of our soul, the one who bought us with his own blood. By the way, Isaiah 55, one through five, that's the most extravagant price ever paid for a bride. Paid for us with his own blood, that we adore him and that we love him. So the application for the day's talk is going to be just to do that. A little longer than we normally do this morning. I'm cutting short the teaching time. It's a miracle. Uh, to give us more opportunity to express our heartfelt worship for the lover of our soul. Again, the one who paid for us with his own blood. And to offer up the sacrifice of praise. It's okay to publicly display your affection for God in church. We can do that right now. Let's stand and tell him how much we love him by engaging in some heartfelt worship.